You're now tuned in to the Finding Success Show, where we interview guests and uncover the keys to success in business and in life with your hosts, Justin Bozak, Abe Cavella, and Tom Zdanowitz. All right, on today's episode of the Finding Success Podcast, we have Mark Scuderi, Remax owner with uh, three different franchises, owns a mortgage company, CrossFit gym, and also a uh, pilot, and he's coaching doing that too, and apparently this guy sleeps. I don't believe him right now, so <laughs> we're going to go you know, back into uh, how Mark Scuderi found success. Uh, he was a retired uh, law enforcement officer and uh, you know, became a realtor, and uh, as he... Kind of, I guess, found that uh, being an entrepreneur, you know, he probably liked money too <laughs> and, and, and enjoyed the hustle and saw that there was, uh, you know, no limits and uh, he's, he's really exploding his business. So welcome to the show, Mark. Glad to have you. Oh, I appreciate it. And you hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, I've been broke and I've done all right in, in life and it, life is just a little bit better when you're not broke. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> So, Mark, why don't you take us back in a day as far as, uh, you know, becoming a law enforcement officer? What made you uh, take that route? And then what made you flip into uh, going into real estate? Sure. So, so law enforcement is just something I wanted when I was young, you know, at 15 years old in high school. It's just always something that I really wanted to do. And I wanted to serve in my hometown where I grew up. And, uh, you know, from an early age, I always kind of took action steps and, Early on, when I was about 16 years old, you know, I was told that if you were an EMT and a medical responder, that looked very favorably for you to get a police job. So I did that at 16 and uh, became an EMT as a young cadet, they called them at the time, and I couldn't even drive, you know. But, uh, you know, I was a, a, an EMT for there. And, you know, just really putting in a lot of time volunteering for the town and getting to know the guys at the police department and working with them on medical calls and those types of things. And it was just something that I really always wanted to do. And, uh, you know, fortunately, I was able to just put the work in and, and get hired at a fairly young age at 21, a uh, long time ago. Uh, but it was just something that I loved and I really wanted to do. And real estate was more of uh, I don't want to say an accident. It was just, I happened to know, you know, I had two family members that were selling. This was back in 2003. And they, they called the only real estate agent that they knew who wasn't really an agent. He was an appraiser. And they asked if he could, you know, recommend somebody. And he says, no, I can list the homes for you. And he listed both properties and they sold, I don't know, in about a week and a half. 2003 was a very booming market like we have now. And uh, you know, I estimated that he made about $20,000. I said, wait a second, that's like, you know, almost a third of my salary. And if he can do it that quick, then, you know, I want to do that too. So I immediately enrolled in real estate school, took two weeks vacation from my job and, and got my real estate license 2003. That's great. So did you, uh, once you started with the real estate, did you, was there a gravitation towards it immediately? Did you end up leaving the force? Did you stay there for a certain amount of years? Yeah, so I stayed on the force for quite some time. And, uh, you know, initially, I, I interviewed with a couple of brokerages. And, uh, you know, I actually went right into a Remax brokerage, which it was a really good fit. And I had to convince the manager to hire me because at the time, Remax really didn't hire new part time people, it just wasn't in their, their model. But I asked, I said, if you give me a, like a minimum production standard or something, I said, I will guarantee you that I will hit it. So you know, I just wanted to come join the firm. It was only about an eight or 10 agent office at the time. 
And, you know, he agreed and hired me. And, you know, by the end of the year, I was the top agent in that office. And really because I just, you know, was out every day. I knew a lot of people. I had a pretty good network. And uh, I was just able to put a lot of deals together. I think in my first month, I did about five units. And I mean, right out of the gate. And it's because I knew somebody that needed to sell and then they needed to buy and that's two units. And uh, it really started to take off quickly. And I saw, you know, pretty early on that there is a lot of potential in this business if I actually knew what I was doing. Uh, so at that time, I really just started reinvesting my profits into coaching programs like Buffini and uh, Howard Britton and, you know, pretty much everyone that existed. They would send CDs at the time and I would just study the business as best I could. I had about an hour commute to my job, so I had plenty of time to listen to the CDs and educate myself and, you know, develop more personally and, and business and really just learn the whole process. And, and that's kind of how I started. So that was, that was 03. So when did you become a broker owner? Uh, so that was interesting. So at the end of 2004, the owners were selling a franchise and, you know, initially they got into the business, they owned a moving company and they said, Hey, what a great opportunity to help our moving company is, is to open a real estate brokerage. And we know that that doesn't really work. Uh, you have to be focused on your real estate brokerage. So they were selling the business. And because I was in a really good company, we had a tremendous uh, compensation plan with our cap program and, and whatnot. So I had extra money to spend. So I ended up buying the franchise in 2004 and then obviously had some challenges. I wasn't a broker. I, I didn't really know much about the business and I had to go and recruit agents that were experienced and actually knew what they were doing. So I had to hire a broker and, and really just get my education in the real estate business so I could provide value to people to come over to to my operation for sure. It's awesome. So it sounds like you just saw the opportunity and took it and ran with it instead of taking a step back and analyzing it and maybe losing that opportunity. You just said, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to figure it out as I go along. Yeah. I didn't know what the opportunity really was to be honest with you. I just knew it was, it, it was an opportunity and you know, you can just keep doing what you're doing and you're going to keep getting what you're getting. But if you try to do something a little different and, and you're willing to put in the effort and, and the work, then uh, I knew that it would pay off eventually. You know, I didn't know about the big housing crash we would have in 2007, 2008. Uh, had I known that, I probably may have uh, went against opening my own brokerage. But in the same sense, uh, it's it's worked out so well today. I wouldn't change a thing. Really, going back. Yeah, take us through there because I noticed uh, in your in your bio you were broker owner of the year in 2006. So you're flying high, everything's great. And then all of a sudden, you know, the market takes a tank, one of the, the worst in history, probably. So what goes through that your mind there? Yeah, so it was real interesting, because then, you know, I invested in a different franchise uh, in New Jersey. And, you know, when the market really started to go in 2008, we realized that these were there were some challenges. So we set up individual meetings uh, with other with all of the agents. And you know, I said, if you wanted to talk about your plan, your financial situation, we're here for you. And literally that meeting, we had a line out the door of our agents. And we learned really quickly that, you know, real estate was a second income for most. But when we had these massive layoffs and, and you know, the secondary income became the primary income and the business was not going in the right direction and uh, people would buy a house and then they would turn the news on that night and say, here, don't buy a house and they would cancel contracts. And it was a very, very challenging time for sure. And, you know, as a broker owner and a leader, you know, our job is, is really just to give our agents the facts of what's going on, but help them navigate through 
you know, the challenges. And at that time, we started learning about short sales and, and things along those lines. But a lot of the agents left the business as well. So when you're in a real estate brokerage, you want activity, you want transactions, you want agents. But agents left the business. So the ones that stayed in the business ended up doing okay. And many, many had to leave uh, the business. So we, we were able to just focus and, and help those agents uh, yeah, as well. So I know you said you do uh, REO business too. Is that about the time when you when you kind of pivoted and went to, to that side of the business? No, so the REO business has only been a few years for me. And, and it really became, it was just an opportunity that uh, our vendor had a listing out here in my market in Phillipsburg. And it was a $30,000 listing and nobody wanted to touch it because, you know, if you do math, it, there's not a lot of that. more than that. But, you know, I looked at it as it's in my marketplace. And, and if anybody's going to have that listing, it should be us. So I went and took care of that listing myself and did a good job for him. And one listing turned into another and another. And, you know, that's kind of how that happened with the REO business. But we were very well versed on short sales because almost every listing was a short sale in 2009, 2010. So we had a lot of uh, experience with, with those types of things. And the banks weren't experienced at the time. It was new, a new avenue for everybody. So we just had to get educated and learn what's going on. And over the years, I've learned I'm in 17 years in the real estate businesses. There's a challenge no matter what market you're in, if you're in a good market, you don't have enough inventory for your buyers and you can't sell houses, right? And then if you're in a really bad market and you have all this listing inventory that you don't want because your sellers are upset that nobody's buying the houses. And so it doesn't matter what market we're in, there's constantly a challenge in the real estate business. And that's, to me, what makes it most you know exciting because it, it is a little bit different every, every market cycle. Mark, I, I want to just take this back a little bit from, obviously you were, the, you were in law enforcement, you got your license, what was what, what moment did you before you left the force and you made this your full time that like you're like, all right, I'm, this was my passion growing up. I wanted to be in law enforcement and reshifting gears and just be like, this is what I'm going to do as my primary thing. I mean, what, was that a hard decision for you? Did was that something that you had to really what was going through your mind at that moment? So it wasn't a terribly hard decision because I got injured at work and I uh, required a surgery. And uh, so it made the decision easier to grasp, but this was, you know, end of 2010, early 2011, the real estate market was still suffering. Uh, so to, to take away guaranteed income and go into a, an industry that really was just struggling, you know, to get out of its own way. And uh, it, it was more of, we didn't really have a choice. And that's where, when I opened up, it's, I've been broke and I've, I've done well and doing well is, a lot better. I remember the stresses very well during that time where, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of income in the real estate business. And I remember times earning a good commission and just handing it to the processor so we can make payroll and just worrying about myself last. Mm -hmm. So those are, so I probably wouldn't have left if it wasn't for the injury, you know, to be honest with you, I probably would have kept grinding it out. But in the long run, I'm so glad that it worked out the way it did because it gave me the opportunity to truly focus you know, on the business and become the broker for the company versus hiring somebody and you know, so on. So, but sometimes you know, you, you're not in charge of how you're going to end up. It's just you follow the path you know, that you're put down for sure. Absolutely. Sounds so, like you made the, uh, made the best of all things. I mean, so coming into to real estate because, I mean, I, I don't know if people really – can grasp, you know, how it is to run three offices and a mortgage company and, 
you know, a gym and, and everything that you have going on. I mean, you're not working any less than you were back then, you know, regardless of money, obviously the money's better. And, uh, you know, when you're, when the market's great, but take us through that right now is like the day to day right now for, for Mark Scuderi. Like what, what does that look like balancing the, all that out? Sure. So uh, I wouldn't, I would probably say I'm working less now than, you know, as far as putting in hours, but being that I had a full-time job, I would either work a 12 hour shift on the day shift or a 12 hour night shift. So if I worked the night shift, I would get home around eight in the morning. I'd sleep till about 11 and then get up and get to the office and do what I had to do. And if I was working the day shift and I was working, I really couldn't handle my real estate business. So early on I had to reinvest profits into hiring help. Uh, you know, the customers needed to be taken care of at, you know, whether it be nine, 10 in the morning. And if I'm sleeping, that's not an excuse. It's a business day. And so I hired pretty early on and reinvested in my business, you know, very early on. So in the long run, that worked out tremendously well for me because I always uh, just had enough support staff to, to really help and make growing a, a heck of a lot easier. And now when we expand our operation and I add another franchise, it's fairly simple at this point because the staff is in place and, you know, so I've always reinvested in, in the right staff. And, and I think that's really the key. You know, we can't do it all ourselves and we can't be as passionate as we were 17 years ago when I started, you know, there's, you, you get tired, you get burnt out. Uh, you know, so it, to have the right people that are motivated and, and, you know, excited to be part of your organization, I think is really the most important in reinvesting those profits into those staff members, sacrificing some income early on, but that's, you know, for down the road, it's going to pay tremendous dividends. Yeah, that's, that's something we've talked to uh, probably every single guest about leveraging people and trying to get where you need to be, but you can't do it all yourself. So obviously you're doing a lot of hiring now, you're doing a lot of interviewing for, of people. What have you learned over the years and certain mistakes you might have made in hiring or, or certain successes you might have had in hiring? What are you looking for in, in people to help grow your business? I'd say the biggest mistake I made is not letting people go when they need to be let go. It's very hard for me to do that. Uh, so you have to find the right people and that are going to, you know, represent your organization well, and they have to be excited and, you know, they get burnt out just like anybody else, but our standards are our standards. So I think our biggest mistake, you know, would really be not letting go of the people who should be let go or just not making that higher in the first place. It's, you know, it's always a challenge. And my newest business, which happens to be the, the CrossFit gym, uh, you know, gyms were shut down. So it's not really a good time financially for that business to go out and hire somebody. But I understand that I can't possibly be as passionate and excited about a business as somebody who's just hired and that's their, you know, their full-time job. I have other obligations. So you have to, even if you don't feel the time is right, if you're going to grow your business, you have to hire and invest and spend the money to get the right people on board as early as you can. Yeah. It sounds like you've really diversified. <laughs> so from mortgage to that to insurance, the CrossFit, I mean, so, you know, I guess the good thing is, you know, that there are obviously some gym owners that don't have diversification with other businesses. And, you know, you've been able to probably carry, you know, the CrossFit through this. It's not, you know, an issue. Um, you know, it's not going to hold you back, obviously. And, and unfortunately, you know, it seems like, you know, a lot of places are going to end up closing. Um, because I think the recovery isn't going to come quick enough unless, you know, there's a further bailout, especially for further gyms. Um, 
so with that, I guess, it, you know, what is your mindset? Are you thinking expansion there or you still kind of fearful, I guess, of kind of how quickly New Jersey was able to shut things down or? Uh, definitely not fearful. Uh, so for me, I wasn't looking to buy a CrossFit gym, but it was something that I learned. I had to take care of my health a couple years ago and I had another uh, accident that I really attributed to not being in good physical shape and uh, so I joined the local CrossFit gym and it literally changed my entire life. It changed me physically. It changed me mentally. Uh, I learned about challenge. I learned about commitment. And it was just one of the best personal development uh, you know, trainings I, I think I've ever had aside from the fitness of it. And the reason I bought it is because the owners were going to close it. You know, they were going into another business. They were absentee owners. It wasn't run right. Uh, members were leaving because, you know, there was no soap in the bathrooms and, and minor things like that. So as a business person, I looked at this and I, I was really intrigued about the people who were there and the demand for the product was, was tremendous. And, you know, there, these were minor business fundamentals that were being missed that for me, this was a piece of cake. I says, I'll just buy this because I know I can get it straightened out. And then I'll hire somebody to run it, and I don't lose my training every day. I mean, it's literally a half a mile from my office. So for me, it's very, very important physically for that facility to operate and operate as well as it can. So it was more selfish, not for I'm looking to buy another business. It was more I don't want this business to go away that I'm a, a believer and a customer of. So that's really where we're at. And the only thing with COVID is it delayed hiring because I didn't want to hire somebody and lay them off. So once March came around when we were just ready to hire, then uh, COVID hit. So we kind of dialed that back and went into survival mode. And, you know, we were only shut down for two months because we were able to move our operation outdoors in the parking lot. And uh, so we were able to, to really stay afloat and, and do, do as well as you can do during those times. But we're kind of back into action now. And we, I literally just this week hired, you know, my manager for the gym and, uh, but that was more selfish than anything. But when, when you get to know business, it doesn't matter if you're real estate or mortgage, insurance, gym, business is business. And if you have your fundamentals and you understand the growth, your business needs to grow. Regardless if you want it to grow or not, you need to have your business growing. And can I do that myself? No, I, I, I just, you know, physically can't do it. I can't be in every place at once. So hiring was easy, even though the finances don't dictate hiring somebody just yet. A long-term growth, right? So, I mean, you know, obviously you just said you can't be there. So it is what it is. I'm going to make the investment now because I still want to go work out and I want soap in the bathroom. I mean, definitely selfish of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it actually ties into your uh, kind of your coaching program, too. We're talking about the four pillars of your coaching program. And I think that's kind of what sets Remax apart, too. We don't hire every single person. We don't have these 400 people offices where everyone gets lost in the mix. You know, we're very detailed in who we hire because we can we can guide them and we can coach them so if you want to talk about your coaching program a little bit and how that fitness aspect kind of plays into it as well sure so it makes a lot of sense so you know going back to my days commuting in the car uh i took so many different coaching programs i was a mentor with the buffini organization and uh i mean there's some really they're all great programs they really were but i felt that they missed a lot of uh, the whole picture, right? And I felt that they they treat they taught you how to be a good real estate agent. They taught you how to build, build a real estate team. They gave you scripts and all that stuff, which is fantastic for your business. But never once did I hear anything about fitness and eating right and that type of stuff. And never once was I told on how to 
organize my finances and, and do some tax preparations. And, uh, and it was always work, work, work. You know, you get on and you're going to make 87 phone calls today and tomorrow you're going to do this. And, and like, I'd like to have a little fun in life too. You know, life could be short, unfortunately. And, you know, I think fun has to be a big part of it. So when I really broke it down and I was trying to find a fancy acronym and, you know, I, I came up with effort, but that's really all I can come up with. But we just focus on family, fitness, finances, and fun. And I really think it should be in that order. Uh, so it's, it, to me, those are the most important parts. So we focus on those four pillars on every single coaching session that we do, whether you're in my organization or I'm coaching you outside of my organization, or even if you're a competitor, I don't mind coaching you, but we're going to talk not so much about your real estate specific strategies. Here's a script to use on a phone call because that's really not that important if you don't have your whole life in check and you're not looking to really build a solid foundation with the four pillars, then you can have all the scripts in the world. It's just not going to make any difference. So like you can buy the scripts, you can Google the scripts and also there's no reason for me to charge somebody to, to give them scripts. Those are easy to come by, but uh, it's my experience and, and how to really just focus on the, those pillars because they're so important and they're very hard to focus on all four, especially in this market. It's crazy busy. We know that. It's very easy to skip the workout for the day or it's very easy to grab a slice of pizza on the, you know, the way to your next showing instead of having a meal prepared that's going to do a little bit better for you. And, you know, finances, you know, it's, oh, the market's good. I'm going to go buy a brand new BMW, but you didn't put anything in, you know, a SEP IRA or, or, or anything along those lines. So those are things that we, I really feel that we got to constantly focus on and be very consistent with. Yeah, I think now more than ever people... Or just saying F it, you know, and it's, it comes down to now people are grounded so much more now than, than I think ever. They're really learning like what is truly important at this point in time. Cause we were able to pause. We were able to take a step back and reflect on really, you know, life and you know, what's left, you know? So, um, that's pretty cool that you're doing that. I know that one of our mantra is in the industry is agents first. Um, so, you know, we definitely, uh, take that in, into consideration too when we're hiring people and, and try to coach them outside, not to the point of necessary fitness. Um, that's that is something that you know we could definitely look to to help bring to the table. I think we we need some, to. I think we need to. Yeah. No. We, we had a, we had a little bit of a weight loss challenge in August, and I'm like, I was like, dude, are you serious? Like this? <laughs> it's end of summer. What are we doing? It was, it was end of the summer. <laughs> I mean, we I mean we had a bunch of people that signed up. And I think everyone fell off the wagon on the first week. One guy lost seven yes. percent of body weight, though. Pretty uh, impressive. Summer at the shore—that's just not fair. I mean, I was willing to join, but they wouldn't let me. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, I love how you you make it kind of a whole uh, kind of holistic look at your business. Because yeah, if you're you're working seven days a week, you really can't give your family the right time. If you're not eating right, then you're going to cut five, ten years off of your life, and then you're not going to spend family time. So, yeah, that's um, that's a nice approach. I think everyone's definitely got to. Got to hit on that. So, yeah, it's definitely critical, man. I mean, I think a lot of people. We talked about this in many shows. They lose sight. It's it's not just about the money. You got to be focusing on your family. You got to be focusing on all those different elements. Um, I love your mantra, man. The, the the effort thing. I mean, that's truly what a lot of people lose sight of. You know, when they're trying to grow. I mean, it, they they get so sometimes they get so focused on their business and they're becoming successful, but they're losing everyone around them. And you know, and at the end of the day, it's like, all right, well, if you have all the money you happy it's you know there, there's a lot of other elements in life that's not you know that's equally important so 
Um, really cool stuff. So in regards to your CrossFit, um, since you guys since you own the gym, do you, are you, do you offer your agents any perks with trying to, you know, go to the gym, memberships, uh, anything of that? It's definitely a membership discount for our agents for sure. Uh, and I do have a, quite a few that have taken me up on that, which is good. Some live a little further, you know, where they live, it's it's not real practical uh, for them to get down there. But if you're within 15, 20 minutes, I, you know, a lot of them really do take advantage of that for sure. Nice. nice. Cross, cross sell, buddy. I did want to ask you about, you about um, COVID. COVID. You, know, you kind of went through all the gas, too. too. What, did what did you learn from it? How did you adapt? What are you going to take from it that you might kind of bring into the future of your business, too? Well, it just really changed. You know, we were going to a, a more online world. You know, it just really expedited that. Uh, what I learned is that the agents, first of all, they don't, they don't all think like I think, and they don't have the beliefs that I have. Uh, so you have to kind of keep those, you know, to yourself, but also understand where they're coming from. Uh, some agents were very, very worried, uh, and rightfully so, very worried about, going out and showing properties. And so my, what I learned is that, you know, I just had to continue to lead. And that's why we went from a weekly in-person meeting to a twice a week uh, online meeting. So we can get the information to the agents. Things were changing as far as showing requirements. And we had to figure out what was safe, what isn't safe. We didn't want our agents doing anything that could put them in jeopardy or at risk. Same thing with our staff. So we just had to really go out and get the information as best we can. I'm very fortunate. I'm married to a nurse. Uh, so I was able to get a lot of good information uh, to, you know, my people so they, they could feel safe, you know, going out and doing their business. Uh, it actually, in my opinion, I think it made business a little bit easier. There's no, you know, Sunday drives going out to look for 10 or 12 houses. Our agents, you know, we had to get very focused with some better technology as far as floor plans and, and better photography and uh, those types of things. So as far as business came, I think it actually took it back a notch a little bit. And if I can do a meeting on Zoom versus traveling somewhere, we actually saved us a lot of time as well. So but really just reminding myself that you have to be the leader, even though I'm not a medical person. Our agents are still looking at us as the broker owner to, to be the pillar of information. So it's important that, you know, we just continued on that and just really keeping them engaged more than once a week, I think was a tremendous advantage for us. Yeah, yeah we were trying to, we were, we were essentially sifting through all, all the PPP stuff, stuff the unemployment stuff, stuff, the economic injury disaster locally program. So, so being the, because they were looking for that information. Obviously, obviously starting, starting off, we didn't know it. So we're so sitting there reading, reading stuff at night and trying to sift through what's going to work for them. So, you know, they come to you for the information, you have to be ready for it. So, yeah, a lot of us were pivoting at that time and trying to figure out what to do. But it was interesting how the showing just slowed down, but the offer stayed pretty simple. Pretty similar. So you, so you had less, less tire, less tire kickers, kickers, more efficient, efficient showings. Uh, but, um, but now we're in this market, which is, which is unheard, unheard of. I've never, I've never seen anything like this where you're at like two or three month inventory. Um, um, yeah. I mean, where do you, where see, do you see the future of real estate? Do you see this market keeping up? Are we coming to a slowdown? I know I'm not going to ask you to pull out your crystal ball, but what do you see happening? Yeah, so really, from what I see is keep an eye on the new construction. So, you know, a lot of the new construction that's been approved over the last couple of years are rental units. So there's still not a big uh, surplus of new construction. And with new construction, you know, we have, that creates the lack of inventory. So I think we're going to stay strong for a while. We're very 
we're very fortunate where we're located. There is a big exodus out of New York City. We're seeing that every single day, as far out as West Jersey, where I am, into Eastern Pennsylvania. We're seeing a lot of New York buyers. So that's uh, you know something that's I don't think going to change anytime soon. To be honest with you. Uh, I think they got a lot of challenges going on there, and I think that's going to continue. The remote work from home, you know, remote, the offices are not going to fill up again. So any kind of office space, I would, you know, be really concerned about what's going to happen with those spaces. More than likely, they'll be converted to residential condos uh, sooner or later. But for the difference between now and 2003 is, in, at least in my marketplace, they were building a lot of new homes, which they're not doing now. So I think it's gonna continue for a while just because of supply and demand. I think there's still gonna be a high demand. We know interest rates will remain low for at least two more years. Uh, and so when you have the low interest rates and lack of inventory, I think it's gonna continue for quite some time. Yeah, yeah, I think the Fed just said, what, they're not going to drop till 2023. 2023. They're going to try to keep things low. low. Uh, we're uh, seeing the same thing with Manhattan buyers, buyers, New York City buyers, buying, buying up all the waterfront, a lot of stuff coming down cash. So uh, it's, it's definitely, definitely sticks for the city, but it's pretty, well, it's pretty, well, pretty good for the suburbs. So. So. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, can you imagine being quarantined for three months in a, you know, a 900 square foot apartment with nothing open below you? And then you, you had the unrest that's been going on in the city and, it's just a, it, it, and there's some challenges because, you know, the companies have now realized that they don't need this office space and this overhead because the remote is working very well. I mean, profits are, are pretty significant if you follow the stock market at all. So I think they realize that they can do more with less and, you know, those buildings are never going to be full again. It just doesn't make any financial sense for companies to do that. And even from a talent perspective, if, you know, I have a business in my area, I'm looking for the best talent in my area because they drive here, but the best talent may be in Boise, Idaho. And now they can work for us remotely with the technology and the bandwidth. It really comes down to bandwidth, right? So seven, eight years ago, the, the internet didn't provide the bandwidth. You didn't have it to host meetings without, you know, to talk fluently and, and calls not to be dropped. And the bandwidth, you know, that exists today, it allows that you can work anywhere in the world, so. Yeah, it's, yeah, pretty, it's pretty, pretty crazy how fast we shifted to this. I mean, we were, I, I, even before COVID, we were starting to mess around with Zoom and doing, I mean, it just like, like hit you like a, like a crazy. crazy. It was just a tsunami. Like, you got it. Everyone has to adapt to this immediately. Um, so I, I don't see it changing either. Uh, we follow, I don't know if you follow Jeffrey Attell as well. He's uh, all around uh, market analyst. He, he actually was talking about this. Uh, recently, that obviously COVID kind of helped push us a little bit, but he was giving an interesting stat that the millennials from ages 25 to 35 are exponentially going to uh, be buying into the market over the next five to eight years or so. And the rates are obviously driving that. Obviously, with the remote learning uh, and the remote workplace that everyone's doing, I don't see that changing anytime soon. He was saying that could go on for at least eight more years. Which is which crazy. Is crazy. Yeah, you have these density populations where there's just millions of people, and they're, and they're all, all leaving and they're going to these suburbs. I mean, that's that's, that's, that's going to take some time. time. And, and that's even if, even if there is a shift in the rates, I don't think that's going to change people wanting to move further, further south and get a lot more for their money. So, so it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Um, yeah. that's, that's what's crazy is that there was a shift where everybody was migrating to the cities. So the millennials, like they wanted to work, play, everything in the city. And now, 
that's, that's dead. dead. I mean, so you so talk about office is dying. dying. Retail, Retail, obviously, with everything, with everything that's going on. Everybody's gotten more used to Amazon and ordering online, like that. You're not walking around. You don't want to, you know, wear the mask or get infected or whatever. So, you know, that person is important to walk in the store to get. So, I mean, New York City as a whole, I mean, what's your outtake, I think, on Outlook on where, Where is, is it in two years? Do you think it will make a recovery? Do you think it'll, it'll ever get back to, to, to what, what it was? Because my, my opinion is it's, it's, it's really, really unless, unless they kind of fix that, that like right, right away, like that's, that's a long-term long problem. problem. They, don't they don't start, start you know, fixing, fixing what just happened, happened there and, and getting, getting rid of the, the unrest and the craziness. Like this is probably like a three-year phase where you know, the you know, city's, city's not, not going to be hot for anything. anything. Jobs, jobs, retail, retail just, just quality, quality of life. And, and you, know, you know, I can see New Jersey, Jersey you know, really, really taking on as, as we already have even more people. people. You know, you know, as, as people, you know, you know see, see that, the restaurants are going to go out of business because the office retail doesn't exist. Destination-wise, who wants to go to New York City right now? I know that I'm not going to go up to the this year. I'm not going to go shopping or anything like that. You know, I'm not going to take my family there. It's just chaotic. And it's not more or less that I'm scared of the virus. You know, you know, it's, it's just, just the environment, the environment is, is so different, different that, that I just, I just don't, don't want to put myself in, in that situation. situation. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, we do talk to some clients that moved out, and what really is alarming to me is they don't feel safe going mm -hmm. to New York. And that reminds me when I was a kid, 17, 18 years old, and we would drive into New York City. I grew up only, you know, about 20, 20 miles tops from the Holland Tunnel. And we used to go in and I remember how unsafe it was, but you did it as a kid anyway, right? And, you know, how the graffiti and everything and how bad it was and, you know, and then how great it was. It, you know, it turned from one of the worst cities in, in the country to one of the, the best and safest. And, uh, you know, obviously, we, unfortunately, we've trended back in the wrong direction. Will it ever recover? You know, it's hard to imagine that the greatest city in the world won't recover, but they're going to have a, a very challenging time period here where you know it's you know think of all the businesses and, and the, the office buildings where they can hire talent cheaper and from other parts of the country where cost of living is so much lower and you know it's not going to fill up like it did for sure uh you know same thing i remember 9-11 like it, you couldn't get out of the city you know that was a problem we're walking across bridges because you're kind of trapped there so it's they're, they're, they have challenges for sure I keep politics out of, you know, my public speaking, but uh, they definitely have some challenges that it's going to be a while. And you, New Jersey, we lose our residents when they, when they retire. So I think seven out of 10 are leaving, you know, it's been that way for a long time. If you're retiring, you're selling your house, you're leaving the state, it's too expensive to live here. Nobody can argue that. Uh, but now we're getting some backfill from New York, which I think is a good thing for us in the real estate business in New Jersey. Uh, but it comes down to cost. And if I can go to a state where you're not going to take away, you know, for your average person, $70,000 a year in, in income or, you know, property taxes and income taxes, then it's a quality of life issue. And if you're a senior citizen and you can move to a state with no tax, and even if you save six or $7,000 a year, when you're retired on a fixed income, that's a quality of life issue. That's a difference of eating spaghetti at the end of the month out of the box or actually going out once or twice a, a month for a nice dinner and, and enjoy some time and a little travel. So that that's a challenge that not only New York City has, but all of the high tax 
you know, states that are that are going to see more uh, of your higher net worth people leaving and, and creating, you know, more challenges. But uh, it, it's, you know, we're fortunate that we're seeing the backfill from New York City. I'm not sure how long that'll last and they'll just pick on, they'll just skip over New Jersey and go down to, you know, a, a different state. That's a better tax environment for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I can see people in Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Florida, Florida things, things like that. that. Um, you know, you know just, just because the same thing, cost, cost of living is high. And then my, and then my concern is, well, New York's, York's going to struggle, struggle Jersey City's going to struggle, Hoboken's going to struggle. You know, these, these companies, companies that are, you know, now based in those areas, where are they going? Are they going further south? Are they going out of state and then going remote? And then it does become harder to get one of those jobs because now you're not necessarily local where, you know, you can't drive to the office maybe once a week or twice a week. So um, it's going to be really interesting to, to, to watch it play out. Um, I feel bad for, for a lot of people that have just invested you know, you know, a lot of time, time a lot of effort, a lot of energy uh, into working for somebody else. You know, I think, I think now, now more than ever, uh, people need to get creative and they need to become entrepreneurs. You know, you know do, do maybe a, a side hustle or, or have some kind of creativity so that, so that way, if there is, is downtime, you do get laid off. Because I think, think all these changes, changes are going to have a ripple effect for, for years. years. I don't think this is just six, six more months and, you know, we're going to be back to normal. Yeah, I definitely agree on the timing. I mean, the the rental inventory in Jersey City, Hoboken right now is through the roof. There is so much unfilled inventory. Uh, it's a massive problem. And I don't want to quote the exact numbers, uh, but I know they're at least two or three times normal inventory. So you think about, we, we're only two months inventory on sales, three months tops. Uh, but the rental market in these cities that are right across the river from New York, they, they have entirely too much inventory. People are just not renting there. Uh, and I have agents that work in that market now with my new office. And uh, it, it, the way they describe that market today is just dead. You know, the rental market in Jersey City is dead. There's way too many. I think there's over 800 rentals listed in Jersey City today. And, you know, that doesn't count the off-market stuff. So you're probably looking at about 1,000 unfilled units. And, and, and that's, a, that's a very, very high number where normally it's in the hundreds, you know, 200 you know, 250 ballpark. So don't quote me the exact numbers, but that's what I'm hearing from my agents, you know, as recent as 10 o'clock this morning. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm hearing 60% off of what, what it used to be. be. Um, they're, they're trying, trying to lock in for a year, year and then but only a year, 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 you know, you know there's a lot of landmarks think the market's going to come back. back. Uh, but, you know, they've, they've got to, I guess, at least pay the expenses and keep it floating. So what do you think, you know, January, February, as far as, you know, you know, foreclosures, evictions, things, things like that. I feel that, that there's going to be a lot of waves in, in, in motion with, with, with that, 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 that all gets. I mean, does that, that bring us the inventory that, that, that we're missing? Does that create more challenges in the market? Now, now we're going to see, you know, more of the short sales happen and in, in certain circumstances where, you know, you know people, people just haven't paid and now, you know, they don't have the equity maybe, you know, because they bought them last year or two to get out. Yeah, so I think uh, the banks, number one, will be a lot uh, more prepared for that than they were when this happened in 2007, 2008. So I think it'll move a little smoother than it did last time. I think the banks will also be a little more creative in keeping people in their homes because if you lost your job for three, four months, but you're back on your feet, I think it would, it would be foolish for the banks to just start foreclosing and not really working on restructuring uh, programs for some of these uh, 
you know, these people that were affected to no fault of their own. So I think the banks will get more creative. I don't think we're going to have a massive rise in foreclosures, but we will see an uptick in them for sure. Because some people will just, you know, especially if they bought recently, it, it just won't make financial sense for them to try to struggle and hang on for the next couple of years in an upside down equity position. So I think uh, those people, it would probably just make sense for them to do deed and lose and, and, and start over. But if you have equity in the property, you're not going to want to walk away from that. And I don't think the bank's going to want to foreclose on it. You know, they're not going to want to deal with it. So I think they'll just end up refinancing or, you know, putting the, the loan on a balloon payment in the back. They're going to have to get creative with it. Uh, but there's more than enough creative ways to do that. So I think it'll, there will be an uptick, but I don't think it's going to be a massive uptick like people think. I think the banks are going to work with the people who have the equity. Yeah, I yeah, think the good thing too, the market is continuing to go up. So hopefully in January, February, things are still good there. Um, and then, and then you know, you know, even if you missed eight payments, payments, I mean, you should, you should have, have some equity, you know. You know? Unless, unless, unless you just closed in February and did a hundred percent financing. Um, but, but I think, I think that's going to be rare, rare you know, and, and I, I think, think like you said, that the banks, banks are going to be a little bit more creative, creative because, because they know if everything drops at the same time, time you know, if we're putting, putting all these foreclosures out there, foreclosing it is going to cause uh, an issue in value. And, 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 and I think as we got to the end of 2013, 2014, we started to see the market stabilize out. You, you saw a lot of the banks actually hold on to these properties, properties and they started fixing them, them and then and they started reselling them. They weren't as much in a rush uh, to sell these properties. properties. So, uh, you know, I think you know, the, the banks, banks have gotten bailed out, out and, you know, they're, they're all solvent. So, I don't think they're going to be quick, quick to, to push people out. I agree with that. So, Mark, one thing we didn't chat about yet is your successful mortgage company, Model Mortgage. I wanted to get a little background on how you got into that and and, and maybe some of the struggles you guys we had when you first opened it and where you are now with it. So, oh, sure, for sure. So basically, not every market's the same, you know. So if you're in a market with an average sale price of say three fifty, uh, maybe four hundred thousand, which exists in New Jersey, some are even a little higher. Uh, the cost to run an operation is almost the same as it does in my market where we have an 180 average sale price and less volume, less agents, those types of things. So I learned after quite a few, you know, a few years in our industry that, you know, your income is based on your market because there's only so many real estate deals that happen. It's a finite number, right? There's X amount of homes will be sold and there's X amount of agents that will sell them. So you could increase market share to increase profits or you can find other ways for ancillary businesses. So after Dodd-Frank, the mortgage broker just completely evaporated. They were, they were just gone. That law it really just slaughtered the little guy because the regulations were so great and the cost to figure it all out, it was just not possible. So I think about 30 or 40%, I want to say the number was closer to 40% of all mortgage originated 2005, 2006, 2007, where we're through the broker channel. And then it went to probably six or seven percent after that. So Motto is a you know Remax-owned uh, company that they figured out a way to bring the mortgage brokerage uh, as the first ever mortgage brokerage franchise into the smaller operations like myself. And, you know when I'm saying you have less than 150 agents, you know it's a smaller operation. They gave us the opportunity to retain that business in-house versus selling it, it out, but also doing it 100% compliantly. So I realized right away that 
you know, for me to get to where I wanted to get, I either had to change markets, but I live in my market and I don't want to move and my kids are here and they're, they're established. So I needed to figure out how to increase revenue. So it just made sense for me to bring the mortgage operation in house. The consumer absolutely loves it. They, you know, think about the customer service we did for so many years. We come in, you know, you meet with an agent, we're going to go find your house and you say, okay, now go find the mortgage. Like that it's, you know, they'll do what they have to do, but they'd rather just, you know, get a referral from somebody that's, that's trusted and able to work out. So for me, I saw the opportunity that I had to take that just to get my business to the next level. Uh, so I, I, I didn't, you know, waste much time on it. So I think it was presented to us January of 17. And by the end of the month, I bought the franchise and we were open and running by June 2017. So, so, so let's, let's talk, talk about, about right now, obviously, obviously um, Historically, historically low interest rates. rates. I mean, the purchase market is probably still steady, steady from what it's been, but now you're seeing immense refis like crazy. So, do you have any challenges with underwriting? I know we're seeing delays like with underwriting right now. And have you done anything to try to offset that and try to shorten the timeframes? Sure. So, nationwide, the mortgage industry is running about three times the normal volume. So, everything is slow. Uh, we also have a, a, a shortage of appraisers nationwide. So, it takes longer to, to have appraisers done. So there's not a lot you can do as far as our, our wholesalers that we work with. You know, when you, they ask for a condition and you submit that condition, it may be 48 hours before they even look at what you submitted. So what we have to do is we have to kind of uh, make sure we're submitting all the conditions at once and we're making sure that we're cross-checking what the consumer is providing to us, that it's going to satisfy the underwriter so we don't have to go back and forth for a period of four or five days just trying to get conditions reviewed. So that really just comes with experience. And over the years, we've learned that we have to, you know, just – speed the process up as quickly as possible. So I'm selling a property for my brother and uh, he was buying a property and you know, the attorney was waiting for you know, the appraisal to come back before they ordered the title work. And I says, that's not the market we're in today. I'm, you know, I'll be happy to have a conversation with the attorney, but we need to get this title work ordered because it has to get to the lender so they can review the title work. And if you're giving it to us two days before closing, odds are it's not gonna get reviewed or they're going to find a problem. We're not going to be able to get fixed in time. So it's really just moving the process along as quickly as we possibly can and getting as much from the consumer up front, trying to wait for the consumer to provide a bank statement or a verification of employment, those types of things. We just have to be on top of that for sure. And that'll expedite it. But there, there's going to be delays. It's going to, it's, you know, 45 days is kind of standard today. Can we do 30? Yeah. You know, perfect credit and all that we can, we can do 30, but 45 is where we're at. And even on the, uh, the HUD, the government side, the government's giving you 60 days to close versus, uh, you know, 45 on an FHA loan or a 203K because they realize that, you know, it's just a lot of different pieces that have to come together. But, you know, just trying to get everything in as quickly as possible is really what's most important. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think you touched, touched on the reason why some people like to have uh, everything under one roof, you know, model, model for instance, and some title. If you're requesting title to run it now and they give you pushback, then that right there is a hiccup in the system and it's going to take, you know, an extra two weeks to close. So, you know, it's not just the communication, it's also the energy to do this. Uh, because, because of the relationship you have. So, just little things like that definitely going to make the process more streamlined. Yep, I for sure. If you work with a specific company and title and you're always, you have a great relationship, you know, they'll stay an extra hour to get your work done versus if you're just somebody out of the blue, you know, it's time to go home, it's time to go home and you'll wait till tomorrow. So these are the little things that you can really do to just 
you know, make sure everything goes smoother, but everyone has to understand it's everything's taken a little bit longer, but that's a good thing because housing is what saved our economy. You know, if, you know, we have, we have a pretty significant recovery from, we didn't know what was happening in March and April. I mean, that was just, you know, that was a doomsday scenario. And the strength of housing is why I'm so confident in the, in the economy because housing, we know, lifts up the entire economy. So housing being as strong as it is, is a really good sign for, for us going forward. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the equity positions are developing, obviously, yeah, there's, there's being money, money created here at the Jersey Shore, I mean, the uh, house maybe that was sold for 515 in February, February is now 700000 I don't know, the, the, the numbers are extreme, kind of where you're at, but, yeah, the, the market's super hot, um, you know, the, the thing, the struggle now is I think people, you know, kind of went through COVID and they were scared to do anything, scared to make moves, so that kind of lets it scarcely on the market. Uh, but, but people, people are now seeing, seeing the numbers, numbers and, and, you know, they're just saying, oh, my God, God like, I, you know, how, how can I not sell? So, so, you know, we're, we're telling anybody, hey, listen, you've got an extra property. property. I mean, the, the money that's, that's coming down here right now is, is pretty crazy. crazy. Uh, people, people are just throwing, you know, all kinds of money to get something secure. I mean, homes are selling in a day, multiple offers. And it's just really, there's, you know, some of the houses won't embrace. It's just what it is. Market's going to have to catch up. So... Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, you know we're, we're advising, advising this, and if, if you thought maybe you want to move, you know, out of the area, too, if you're thinking about moving to another state, state, you know, now may be the time, because, you know, certain, certain markets aren't as hot as, as, as the Jersey Shore. Shore. You want to talk, talk to us a little bit about, about you know, your, your market and kind of what, what's the average, maybe, uh, increase in, in price or volume right now? Yeah, so we're probably, we don't have 700, so I can tell you that. We haven't gotten that high yet. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we see some fives again, and, you know, for the last 10 years, we haven't seen a five either. So our average sell price is probably about 250, 275 on average. Uh, and we sell properties, you know, our lowest sale last year was 7,500 bucks, and it's not a rental, that was an actual sale. And, you know, our highest was, you know, we, we do run into some bigger ones in 100 and now and again, you know, Mike get over to a million mark. Uh, but for us, we've always had to, you know, had to grind it out. So, you know, it's a, it's an interesting conversation because I have that with our representatives at the board all the time when it comes to the circle of excellence. I'm like, you don't understand to get to the 12 million for that gold level or whatever it is, you, you know, we can't do 70 units. We got to do 80 or 90 units. It, it's like, you know, it, it's not really, it doesn't equate to other areas of, of the market, but you know, our real estate licenses say New Jersey real estate agents. So, you know, we can go wherever it is we want and, you know, but we don't see the 700s yet. I don't think, I think I sold one 700 in my life and that was a mammoth, you know, so that was, uh, but we're, we're typically seeing, you know, 350 is, is a very good market for us right now. 375, even the low fours, there's some, certain markets that we you know certain developments we have in that price range but i'm always envious of you you guys that have those higher numbers out there for sure yeah i mean we, we definitely, definitely got a mix uh, uh, but there's no question our average is definitely higher right they actually, actually just released the, the statistic august to august so august 2019 to august 2020 monmouth county values are up 20 percent I mean, just, just nuts. Inventory is down like 30%. <laughs> <laughs> that's on, that's that's on, on closings. So, so right, in, in July, the market, market is really exploded. So, so I think the next month, you know, know when we see the closings happening, it's going to be even, even, even heavier than that. It's crazy. I mean, these guys, and then, and then uh, which was interesting, what I was telling you, Jeffrey Tell earlier, homes over 2 million in New Jersey, 
the, the amount of sales since COVID hit has gone up 250%, highest in New Jersey's history. Um, so they have these people, which I mean, you were talking about people coming out from New York, I mean, they're spending all this type of money, over $2 million. So, yeah, I mean, it's definitely interesting. Um, so with Motto, when you got that started, I mean, obviously – you know, I'm sure you had your agents had a lot of different relationships with different mortgage companies and and so forth. So you probably had a little bit of a slow adoption rate. What's your adoption rate now versus when you got started? Yeah, so it's pretty, it's significantly higher uh, because of some of the joint marketing and efforts that we do. Uh, our our loan officers are part of our mastermind group, uh, and after a while, you get you want to work with who you know and who you trust, right, and who you like. So that's really what it comes down to. But we are able to help our agents. Like we have a pretty aggressive Zillow program, uh, and we're allowed to do it compliantly through uh, Zillow. So we're able to invest some of the mortgage business into the Zillow program. Uh, we advertise on the agent sites, and you know, all done compliantly, and that allows us to increase our overall spend for leads for our agents, especially some of the newer ones. Uh, so. And the agents really appreciate when you're reinvesting what you're doing, you know, as the broker, if the broker, you know, I pull up in a Ferrari and, you know, they're barely getting by, it doesn't make a lot of people happy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they understand that we do reinvest our, our profits on both sides, you know, uh, of our affiliated businesses and ultimately it benefits everybody. But if we do a lousy job, that's irrelevant because we're just not going to get the business if we do a lousy job. And, you know, in the beginning, like anything else, we had some bumps and bruises trying to figure out, you know, the processing part and uh, working the broker channel. Our loan officers were, they came from banks, not brokerages. So, it, you know, business is done a little bit differently. And then we learn who our good wholesalers are and who the ones that aren't doing a very good job for us as well. And unfortunately, you learn that the hard way. And when you learn that, it's on you, not the wholesaler, even though you've done everything completely perfectly. Uh, if the wholesaler does a bad job, then, you know, the consumer thinks you did a bad job. Your agent thinks you did a bad job. And, you know, it takes time to repair that relationship if you're even able to do that. So, uh, but there are bumps and bruises in anything you start. There's a learning curve in anything, you know, and at this point, if I could share my, you know, goods and bads with the, the mortgage brokerage to help our my colleagues and, and fellow people not make the mistakes we made, you know, that's, that's a blessing in itself. And, you know, I guess I'm happy to do it there. You know, we're happy to share what we've learned over the years, but for now our adoption is very, very strong uh, because it's a win-win. The consumers love it. The agents love it. When you can call my processor or walk right into her office and get an exact answer immediately as to where, what the status is with the loan, because we've also learned, believe it or not, that buyers aren't totally truthful when they speak to their agents about their loan status. Uh, so, you know, or things that we've requested or, you know, sometimes, the, you know, they tell you they work, but they've really been furloughed for the last three months and they just leave that out, you know, little things like that. Uh, so when our agents can really work together as a true team, then it, it improves the relationship and then it just provides value to not only the consumer, but the agent as well that they know exactly what's going on with the transaction and that helps tremendously. Uh, fantastic. Well, man, one last thing I want to hit on is um, uh, your piloting. So uh, you got to fly down and see us, obviously, but tell us a little bit of how you got into that. And I think that's probably the fun aspect of your, your ethic coaching. So tell us a little bit about that. 
So it's always something I've always wanted to do since, you know, I was probably a kid and, uh, you know, who has time to really figure that stuff out. And, you know, it's an expense and it's time and it could be a little scary as well. But it really goes back to CrossFit because for me, going to CrossFit was just as scary and just as challenging. And uh, when I overcame that and, and the people in my gym were just amazing. And I really learned that I, ha- I have this take flight mindset, I meaning I can do whatever I want to do. And we all think that sometimes, but we don't really believe it. You know, so we think we can do what we can do. We tell our children all the time, you could be anything that you want to be, but we don't truly believe it. So for me, after accomplishing some pretty cool things at CrossFit uh, and getting a trainer certificate there and and really just adopting, I realized, I just believed that I could do what I wanted. So for me, it was something, a bucket list item. I said, I'm not going to waste any more time. I'm just going to go do it. And, and I just found the local flight school and, and went right ahead with it. So it's it's been a, an awesome adventure thus far. You know, I, I try to fly at least once a week. And, you know, I take my son up now and again. Uh, he loves going up as well. So it, he kind of checks off the, you know, the fun and the uh you know, family at the same time, which is pretty cool. And it's a good bond, you know, that we have my son and I, you know, between that and we'll stop for, we'll fly somewhere and we'll stop and have some breakfast. And it's just, it really, it really completes, you know, a couple of things that I think are really important to me. And my goal down the road is when my children are older and they're in college that my wife and I can just go visit wherever they are. And it could be a day trip to jump on a plane and, and go or, or travel the country and see all those little airports and little places and states that you normally just fly over getting between the hubs. And I want to see all that stuff. So it's really recreation, but it's as much family as recreation than anything else. It's not so good on the finances. I'll tell you that. Because you mentioned before that you have to rent the plane, you know, so there's like a cost like that involved, like, you know, renting a plane for a day or. Yeah. So I actually just joined a flying club at a Lehigh Valley International. So you pay a small monthly membership and then the cost of the plane is per hour, but it's when the plane's running. It's not when it's parked. So if I flew down to you guys for the day, you know, I'm going to fly about, 40 minutes there, 40 minutes back for argument's sake. I'm only paying for, you know, the, the 80 minutes worth of flight time. Uh, and then the rest is just parked. So you can take the plane for a couple of days and, and go on a trip. And you, so you're only paying for when that motor is running, essentially. But, yeah, it, it could get a little bit pricey, you know, for sure. It, it's But it's no no more expensive than around the golf, that I can tell you. So if you're golfing once or twice a week, you're spending as much, if not a little more, and what it costs, you know, for me to, to rent the airplane, but it's still the most cost effective way for the time I have and the amount that I fly, you know, renting or being part of the flying club really is, is the most cost effective way to do it right now. Pretty cool. Pretty awesome, cool. buddy. Yeah. yeah. Any, uh, any parting shots you on the, uh, on, on the industry or anything that you see that, uh, you know, right now with the, with the environment that you kind of want to leave, uh, yeah, well, a lot of new new people getting into the business, you know, so this is something we haven't seen in a while, a lot of brand new licensees. And, uh, you know, I, my message would be understand that you're getting in, you're building a business. And a lot of people watch AG, HGTV and they think that they can go show some homes, right? You only go look at three homes and then you pick the one, right? And then they, they call you and tell you which one they decided on. You know, so obviously that's very, very far from reality. It's a business and no different than if you're opening a restaurant, a gym, a barbershop, I don't care what your, your business is, it's going to take time to get your business running, it's going to take investment, it's going to take sacrifice, but if you stay committed and consistent, 
it could be one of the best businesses that I think exist out there because I don't know of a business where you can go to school for two weeks and, and turn that into a six figure income relatively quickly. And I say relatively quickly, maybe a year, two, three, who knows, but that's relatively quickly, you know, compared to the alternative, which is, you know, going to school, coming out with a bunch of debt after four years and, and not making that kind of money. Uh, so I think it's a tremendous business, but that's what I'm seeing. A lot of new people coming into the business. A lot will leave the business because I think they think it's a layup and it's not, it's, uh, it's a grind. It's, it's building a business. But my advice would be just, if you decided to take this step and get into the real estate or the mortgage business, I'll just be committed to it and, you know, don't take no for an answer. Just go and get, go build your business. So that's what I would recommend today. Great. Mark, it was great having you on. I appreciate it. We'll have to, uh, definitely to come up and visit the new office at some point. We'll have to definitely arrange that. I know we're all kind of crazy at some point, but uh, again, thank you. Uh, and it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Finding Success Show. Make sure to subscribe for future episodes. Also, check us out at Finding